I'm Matt. And I'm Jenna. We are Mana. And this is Food for Thought. A podcast dedicated to encourage and inspire you as you seek to grow your relationship with Christ and live out your Catholic faith. In today's episode, I talk about the Eucharist and the Mass as we anticipate returning to Mass in person. I don't know if you all heard about this news story, but um, I saw this headline that a sheep, a drum, and a snake fell off a cliff. But um, yep, uh, it is episode seventy-one. Welcome, welcome. So good to be with all of you. Um, let's go right into peak pit and plug. Um, peak is. Our baby is here. Our son, Levi Obadiah Zemanek. That is his name. It is the dopest name ever. We are so in love and overjoyed to have him here. And that um, was just such a gift. Um, All of the other episodes that have been coming out, I recorded in advance. And so this is my first time recording for several weeks. So it's just interesting, this new dynamic and and how different life is. But um, he is good. Mom is good and healthy. If you know us, you know that um, when our first, um, our daughter Hannah was very young, like five days old, um, she had a pretty serious um, health scare and had to go into um, the PICU. And so, um, and that had to do with just like things not going right with her food and nutrition and things like that. And so, um, thankfully, Levi's looking really good in that um, in that area and in every other area. He's doing great. And so, um, just pray for us as we adjust. Um, but we're doing well. Mom is doing well. Um, he was born face up with the cord wrapped around him, and by some providential intervention, they were not—they um, weren't aware of that, and so they didn't rush my wife into a C-section or anything like that. And she, she got that kid out, and um, yeah, it was really, really awesome. And she's doing surprisingly well. So. Um, that's a huge peak, huge joy is having him here and all of us at home adjusting. Uh, Pitt, um, physically, I haven't been doing super great, so would love your prayers for that as well. Um, had many days where my body just feels like it's falling apart. So, um, weird pains in my abdomen, my head, and so I've, I had a physical scheduled for months ago, but it kept getting postponed and postponed and postponed. So that should be in about three weeks. So pray I at least last that long, um, in terms of what's going on and figure out what it is and that it's not serious. And so, um, but I think another pit, and this is obviously much more serious, is just everything that's been going on in our world um, w- in regard to, you know, racism, the rioting, um, just kind of conversations. I wouldn't even call them conversations, but interactions on social media um, and just a, a very demonizing of each other's sides in this whole issue. And, um, you know, I I grew up in a very... Um, Anglo-centric area. I grew up in a mountain town, you know, but um, I went to college in San Bernardino. I have a lot of friends um, from that kind of inner city, inner inner inland empire area and had the benefit throughout college of having a lot of conversations with them about uh, race and about their experience. And I just, I want to encourage you wherever you fall on this side of the issue, um, if you're Googling more than you are talking to people who have the real life lived experience of daily systemic racism, um, then you're doing something wrong. And so if you don't believe systemic racism exists, you're entitled to your opinion, but please do not just Google things to try and agree with your opinion. 
Uh, rather, I would encourage you as much as you voice that opinion to listen to people who have that experience and not to refute it or to defend your position, but just to hear them. Because I guarantee you, you're going to learn something about uh, the daily experience of people of color, of black people in this country, that is very different from your experience if you um, don't identify as those races. And so um, that's just something I want to encourage everyone to do. And if you're on the other side, totally advocating for, you know, um, justice and all of that when it comes to racism, but you're also not talking to the lived experience of those people and finding ways that you can actually practically get involved and make a difference, um, then it just is kind of, you know, empty posting, you know, and so um, we'll be on to another thing in a couple weeks if we have that attitude. So I think we really just need to listen. Uh, and so my pit is that a lot of people aren't listening and especially a lot of white Catholics are not listening. And that is just really tragic in my opinion. Um I have, the only people I've heard say systemic racism doesn't exist are white Catholic people. And you wonder why Catholic churches aren't overwhelming, uh, overwhelmingly full of black brothers and sisters. So anyway, just something to consider, uh, whether you agree or disagree with any of that. I think it's something we need to be um, sensitive to. And please continue to pray for all the people involved, um, George Floyd, the repose of his soul, his family, his friends. Um, all the ways that they feel overwhelmed by the fact that this has been taken into an issue um, and all of those who are demonizing the protesting by rioting and looting, all those cops whose lives are on the line or who have lost their lives um, because of senseless acts of injustice toward them um, and just all of the systemic abuse and um, oppression and brutality that particularly the black community and minority communities have experienced at the hands of um, all senses of authority and power, and especially the, the police, um, all of which is well documented. So I, all of that, let's just pray for all of those people involved and that justice would prevail, that um, a deeper sense of awareness of the other, of our brother and sister and their experience will prevail, and that we will spend more time listening than Googling to defend our point of view or trying to listen to refute rather than listen to understand. And so I would encourage you to do that. I'm encouraging myself to do that. Um, I have, um, I need to constantly be checking myself. Do I desire to be right or do I desire to be charitable? And what I've been thinking about a lot lately is that I would rather be misguided and misinformed, but charitable, then I would rather that desire than the desire to always be right and be a kind of a self-righteous jerk. So, um, and I've unfortunately seen a lot of the latter, too much of the latter um, in the Catholic Church um, and in Christianity in general lately, but especially in Catholicism. Uh, and that might be, that's my narrow, you know, group of friends on social media. Uh, that may well be true, but um, I think there's something to that that we really need to address. So, Address that in yourself, however that convicts you or speaks to you. Anyways, that was a long pit. So plug, um, something that will help, I think, in the midst of all of this. Um, I'm getting a lot of Zoom headaches and digital headaches, and then you may be on social media a lot because of this whole racial injustice issue being talked about. And I think, yes, we need to um, be vocal and advocate, but we also need to put our screens away and take time to... Um, respect our own mental health and well-being. And so I want to encourage you to put your phone away or to put it on grayscale mode. Uh, and so in on an iPhone, uh, you go to settings and then general accessibility, display and text size, and then go to color filters and you turn on and select the grayscale filter. If you're on an Android phone, you go to settings and then to system and then developer options 
then simulate color space, and then monochromacy is what you select. And then if you have a Google or Windows phone, you go uh, to the bathroom and put your phone directly into the toilet where it belongs. Anyway, um, so this is, all that being said, um, this episode is set to come out on the weekend of Corpus Christi Sunday, the solemnity of the body and blood of Jesus. And because many of us are just starting to go back to Mass, or in Orange County, that will be our weekend to go back to Mass, I thought it would be prudent to talk a little bit about the Eucharist and the Mass from a perspective of longing and hungering and really what the true meaning and purpose of Mass and the Eucharist is. Um, I've said this on previous episodes, but If your faith has become totally sacramentalized and disconnected with personal relationship from Jesus, then I think this time has probably been especially trying for you because um, if our faith becomes attached to those sacramental experiences and it's not founded in something deeper, then when those are removed, we have nothing left. And we're kind of left to be face to face with our relationship or lack thereof with Jesus. And that is something that I hope has convicted you in a good or bad way. Um, like not, not a bad way, but has convicted you to the positive or the negative reality of that in your own life to really seek to deepen that personal relationship with Jesus and allow the sacraments to become those kind of, um, checkpoint moments or those experiences that deepen that existing relationship rather than the totality of the relationship itself. So when we talk about the Eucharist, this is the how profound the sacrament is. If someone received the Eucharist once in their entire life, but they completely understood it, and they were completely unrestricted in their openness to Jesus, that one reception of the Eucharist would be enough to change their entire life and sustain them for the rest of their life. That's the reality of the power of the Eucharist. Um, The Catechism says it is the source and summit of our life. It is the sacrament of sacraments. We truly believe it is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. And if you want a scriptural foundation for that, go to John 6, the Bread of Life Discourse, which I think begins around verse 22. Um, Go to Matthew 26, um, 26, the words of institution at the Last Supper. Um, And go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 16 through 17, um, where this is the earliest written account of um, the Eucharist because 1 Corinthians was written before the Gospels were. Um, And St. Paul is proclaiming here in verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? That from the earliest moments in the church, this was central to who we are. And if you want to read about this in the catechism, the section is uh, paragraphs 1322 to 1419. Yes, it's almost 100 paragraphs, but it is full, rich of theological language. And so I don't want to talk so much about like the who, what, where, when, why of, you know, the the, the Eucharist. And I, we've done a previous episode on this. You can go back and listen. I'm sorry, I don't have that episode uh, number uh, written down at the moment. But I think that, um, you know, if you want a little bit more information about the Eucharist, you can go to those different sources, go to Scripture, go to the Catechism. But I want to talk about the Eucharist from this perspective of longing and going back and really getting to the heart of the meaning of the Mass and what it means to receive the Eucharist once again. And I may have told the story in the previous episode, but, you know, hopefully I'm not repeating myself, but I think it's worth repeating, if I even if I am. Um, but my favorite Mass... 
um, was my wedding day, obviously. It was August 10th, 2013, um, and we got married at the church where um, both my wife and I had been baptized, received First Communion, been confirmed, where we both grew up uh, in the same town, and we were married there. Um, and um, I just, you know, it was an experience of Mass unlike any other, because sometimes I think we can go to Mass with this kind of critical worldview or lens that like, oh, I wish this was different or this was better, or why are we saying Mass in this form, or why are we being too loose or too rigid with the things we're allowing or that are happening at Mass, you know, whatever. But when, when I was there for my wedding, like none of that mattered. You know, and everything for that wedding mass, I remember as if it were perfect, you know, but even if, you know, the music had been terrible or the homily had been trash, like it would not have mattered to me because I got the point of why I was there. Why do I say this? Well, because my second favorite mass was the next day. My wife and I got married on a Saturday and uh, in the afternoon at one o'clock and um, we weren't leaving for our honeymoon till the following Friday. And so the next day was Sunday, and we decided to go to Mass in the morning. Um, and we went at that same parish, and we, you know, knelt down in the pew, and everything was a normal Mass, you know, normal Mass that nothing, I, I don't remember anything particularly profound about this Mass until we got up to go to communion, and my wife and I walked to the aisle, as we always did, and processed down the aisle to the altar. And I had a flashback of the day before, my own wedding. And recognized that just as my wife walked down the aisle to receive someone that she loved with her whole heart and was willing to lay down her life for and was going to meet that person, me, at the altar, who was going to give him his, give her his whole heart and lay down his whole life for her. The same thing was happening at that Mass and it happens at every single Mass. You see, my brothers and sisters, every time we go to Mass... We go to a wedding. And not only that, we go to our wedding. That every time you and I go to Mass, we are going to give ourselves and to receive the full body, blood, soul, and divinity of one another with Jesus. To lay down our lives in union so that we might be exchanging with one another in a covenant exchange. That's what the word sacrament comes from the Latin word sacramentum, which means covenant. And a covenant is not like a contract where, you know, I'll pay you uh, X amount of money and you come paint my house. And then when it's done, we leave and never see each other again. Um, no, a covenant is an exchange of persons. It is a vow, uh, very like a mar- very much like a marriage. A marriage is a covenant where you and I go and we receive Jesus in a something that is meant to be a um, a moment attached to a lifelong exchange, and every single one of the seven sacraments is that type of covenant. That in baptism we give our lives to the Lord as a new creation. In confirmation we give our will and our uh, future over to the the Holy Spirit and allow Him to direct us. Um, in anointing of the sick we give our lives and our trust over to the Lord, entrusting to His healing or to His um, ability to call us home where we belong. Uh, in reconciliation, we bear the things that we've done uh, to our Lord to break that covenant relationship so we can be brought back into union with him. And in marriage, obviously, that is what we do. And in holy orders, where a priest lays down his life and in a sense marries the church. And all of that reaches its climax, its fulfillment, or it's meant to at least, in our experience of the Eucharist. 
And so, you know, if you've been at home streaming mass, obviously it's not the same. Even if you're live streaming it, you could not have possibly live streamed into your wedding. First of all, sacramentally, it would not have been valid. This is why you cannot do, you know, confession over the phone or over Zoom. It has to be in person uh, because there needs to be a sense of presence and exchange there that cannot happen digitally. Um, but streaming mass might be the, um, the equivalent of watching your wedding video back. You know, you're obviously not going to get in your tuxedo and your wedding dress again and act as though this is the moment, you know. So it's not exactly the same, but it can have some reverence. You know, I'm not just going to be like criticizing it or like joking around like I'm going to have this love in my heart for my wife when I watch that video to say like, wow, like, yeah, I, I love you. And I'm reminded of that. And that's really what streaming mass or watching mass should be. It should be a uh, reminder of that covenant that Jesus is has and will continue to invite us into. But now as we go back, we have an opportunity to recognize what it is that we have been doing this entire time and maybe have been doing wrong. That mass is not simply a spiritual strengthening. You know, but I think we think that because we receive the Eucharist, which is meant to be our food for the journey. That is correct. It's meant to nourish and sustain us spiritually. But it is also a remembrance and a participation in the one sacrifice of Jesus for our sins to give himself entirely over to us. And we are invited to give ourselves entirely over to him in response. That is a union, a covenant that we are being invited into every single time we go to Mass. Every time we go, we are making a commitment to Jesus who has already made an eternal and unrestrained commitment to you. And so the altar is not just a uh, table of thanksgiving where that food imagery and nourishment imagery, imagery comes from. It is also a sacrificial altar where we're reminded of that gift. It is also uh, symbolizing a tomb, not only where Jesus laid his own body, but where we are meant to lay down our lives, where the gifts are brought and meant to be transformed and saying, God, we bring you everything in our lives and we give you permission to allow it to die so that you can resurrect it or make it new. And even ourselves, when we bring up the, the bread and the wine, we are meant to envision ourselves going up with those gifts, being laid on the altar and being blessed and transformed into something that Jesus can dwell within more perfectly. And the other image for the altar, which is probably the most uncomfortable for a lot of people, but I think it's the most beautiful, is the image of a wedding bed. That when two people, a husband and a wife, when they've become married, when they enter into the physical expression of their vows in the wedding bed, that that is the most intimate, most vulnerable exchange of persons that we can enter into. And yet Jesus is inviting us into something beyond that. He's inviting us to the spiritual reality of that. And it has that physical um, component of receiving food. But there is that intimate reality where Jesus is saying, no, like, I want to be one flesh with you. And don't over-sexualize this and don't, you know, like, make it creepy and uncomfortable for yourself, especially if you're a, ma a man and you're like, wow, this is getting in some... No, if you're doing that, you're thinking in the kind of pornographied way that the world encourages us to think about sexuality. But if you think about sex and the exchange of persons with one another in the marital covenant, in the pure... And, and just beautiful way it was created to be, then the innocence of it should mirror the innocence and the intimacy that we are invited into in the Eucharist, where two people, us and Jesus, can become one flesh. That that Eucharist 
goes into our body and the nourishment from it and the spiritual reality of Jesus dwelling within us, we become living tabernacles, goes into every single cell of our body. And so this should affect us deeply and profoundly. Like we should not be coming to mass ever and especially going back to mass, which is like, okay, now I can assume my normal routine. Or now I can just go back through the motions because now I can check those boxes again every week. This should affect every single way that we go through Mass. It should affect our preparation. Just like I prepared for my wedding. You know, I uh, prepared my vows. Um, I got there early. I made sure, you know, obviously uh, there was no chance like I was going to not find a parking spot on the day of my wedding. Like I was going to be one of the first people there, you know, I dressed a certain way, you know, so our preparation for mass should be similar to that. We need to fast in order to receive uh, communion with, um, you know, pure undefiled stomachs. Um, just like I wanted to make sure that I received my wife and I gave myself to her in a pure and undefiled way. We prepare our vows, which are the readings that are going to be read, that it's not the first time that we hear them. We're attentive or, you know, um, well, that's something for, uh, you know, a later point. But in terms of our preparation, we get there on time. Um, you know, when we park, we're not parking on the street or backing into our spot just so we're, we can think about leaving and getting out of there as soon as possible. But we get there in time to do that. And we're civil in the parking lot on our way in and on our way out. And we dress appropriately. We recognize there's something different about what we're doing. Now, I'm not one to tell you what you have to wear and what you cannot wear to Mass. Obviously, I hope, you know, we're all in agreement that it's a modest and reverent occasion. But if whatever you're wearing to Mass, if you can then go immediately into any other activity, then you're wearing the wrong thing to Mass. You know, but if you go to Mass and you're wearing something, and people are like, people could then kind of... um narrow down what it was you were doing if they saw you after be like well that person was obviously going to a professional job or to an interview or to something important or special occasion then yeah you're probably dressing appropriately but if you can go straight from there to a burger shack to you know the beach or whatever you're probably not dressing with the reverence uh, appropriate for mass but that reverence cannot be an empty external shell it also has an inner disposition and so we're meant to prepare internally and so what's more important than what you're wearing externally is the heart you bring to Mass. And so when we get to our attitude, our participation, our attention, think about how you would be on your wedding day. Or if you're married, how you were on your wedding day. Like your attitude should be so positive and welcoming and just excited. We should obviously be participating because if you don't participate in the responses at your wedding, it is not valid, you know? And our attention should be there. It's not like I was pulling out my phone, texting every five seconds or checking the, the score on the game. You know, like I was there focused, ready to give my life to my wife. And so our demeanor uh, and the way we carry ourselves, the way we act when we are there, should be one that um, shows that this is something special, something different. Our general approach to Mass, is it about what I'm getting out of it or what I'm giving? You know, I didn't approach my wedding to be like, okay, well, this better be good. It better be worth my time. And then this commitment I'm entering into for the rest of my life, like, what am I getting out of it? Like, you know, am I going to get a free meal every every day? Is my wife going to cook for me? Oh, like, that would be such a destructive way to enter into marriage and a relationship. It's about giving. Like, I want to give my life to this person. I want to make them even happier. I want to allow us to grow together and adventure through life together. We should have that approach to Jesus. I want to give my heart to the Lord because he's already given me everything. I want to adventure through life with Jesus at my side. 
Like that is such a beautiful way to be in relationship with God that if there's another shutdown, another lockdown, another quarantine, you carry that relationship with you unhindered, unencumbered because it is beautiful and intimate and profound. And when you do have the benefit, the gift of being able to enter into a sacramental moment, then it's even more beautiful. It's the equivalent of a married couple who, you know, married couples can't have sex 24-7. You know, their intimacy in their wedding bed is like a sacramental moment. But they can't do that all the time. And sometimes, because of the teachings of the church when it comes to things like natural family planning, um, we have to practice chastity. And this moment of quarantine, these past few months, has been an exercise in sacramental chastity. And if you have struggled in that, then you may be placing your emphasis on the wrong part of the relationship. And it doesn't mean that part is bad, but it means it's out of proper order. So recognize what is the approach. It's not about what I get, but what, what I give. When it comes time to offer something, offer financial contribution to the church, that is kind of a symbol of I'm willing to give until it hurts. I'm willing to give more than would be comfortable for me, just like I would in a marriage. You know, no one gets married, hopefully, saying like, oh, yeah, this is going to be a piece of cake and I can just give it 10% and it will be fine and joyful for the rest of our lives together. No, of course not. We need to be willing to give in that moment of offering. And then not just seeing that as like, a, okay, I put my envelope in the collection, but a recognition that that needs to be matched by my willingness to give of myself to Jesus, to give of my talent and treasure and time to the well-being of the church, to my brothers and sisters in Christ, as we all converge upon Christ together. We have to be willing to give of our time. And this goes back to when we when we prepare, when we're parking, when we arrive, when we leave. You know, if you're the last to arrive and the first to leave, you are doing mass so utterly wrong because you are missing this opportunity and invitation that is being given to you. And so if you have a schedule where like I have to leave mass 15 minutes earlier right after communion every week because I work, tell them because of religious observances, you can't come in until 15 minutes after that. They legally can't do anything about that. Like, they have to accommodate you. But have you even gone through the time and effort to be able to just say, no, this is something that I need to do and I'm desiring um, to do, and I'm asking that you accommodate my religious observance and practice and give me that free exercise of religion? They have to accommodate that request. There's no reason why they cannot legally. So recognize, like, if you find yourself pressed for time to get to Mass, get there on time and stay the entire time and allow yourself to have maybe a, a moment with Jesus after mass and you're not just rushing out, um, then I think that's something you need to rearrange your schedule for. Because, you know, I didn't show up to my wedding like with a minute to spare, you know, in my PJs saying like, oh man, you should be grateful I'm even here. Or like, I just got to find a seat. And then, you know, after communion was like, all right, honey, you stick around for the kiss part. Just like, you know, I'll, I'll see you at the reception. Like, no, of course not. And that is the image that we, and the, the attitude we give to Jesus week after week, many of us. And lastly, I think just our openness, our willingness to participate, our willingness to see things done differently, go to masses that are a little different, a different rite, a different language, a different form or order than we're used to, and seeing the good in all of that. It would not have mattered the order or form of my wedding. As long as it was a valid sacramental marriage, I was there with the person who mattered more to me than anything else. With the two people that mattered more to me than anything else. Jesus and my wife. 
And that was a union, not of just us two, but the three of us together. As it says in Ecclesiastes, a three-ply cord is not easily broken. And that is what we enter into. You know, something that I would encourage you to find is, um, you know, there's a a great video from Matthew Kelly that he includes in, um, uh, or he talks about it in the intro to Rediscovering Catholicism, his book. And then he recorded it as a video, and I think you find it on YouTube. It's called The Epidemic, I think. And he has this hypothetical scenario where there's an epidemic sweeping through the globe. And it's just so prudent, or not prudent, it's so um, applicable to our current situation that I think it's worth re-watching and then see how he ties that to our relationship with Jesus as it, as it applies to coming to Mass every week. It is very, very beautiful, very profound. Um, yeah, I, I kind of want to read it. Yeah, let me read it to you. So if you've heard this before, um, you know, just fast forward. I don't know. But I want you to take a moment and listen to this. This is the introduction or the prologue to Rediscovering Catholicism by Matthew Kelly. Imagine this. You're driving home from work next Monday after a long day. You turn on your radio and you hear a brief report about a small village in India where some people have suddenly died, strangely, of a flu that has never been seen before. It's not influenza, but four people are dead, so the Centers for Disease Control is sending some doctors to India to investigate. You don't think too much about it. People die every day. But coming home from church the following Sunday, you hear another report on the radio. Only now they say it's not four people who have died, but 30,000 in the back hills of India. Whose villages, whole villages have been wiped out and experts confirm this flu is a strain that has never been seen before. By the time you get up Monday morning, it's the lead story. The disease is spreading. It's not just India that is affected. Now it has spread to Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, and Northern Africa, but it still seems far away. Before you know it, you're hearing this story everywhere. The media have now coined it the mystery flu. The president has announced that he and his family are praying for the victims and their families and are hoping for the situation to be resolved quickly. But everyone is wondering how we are ever going to contain it. That's when the president of France makes an announcement that shocks Europe. He is closing the French borders. No one can enter the country, and that's why that night you're, you're watching a little bit of CNN before going to bed. Your jaw hits your chest when a weeping woman's words are translated into English from a French news program. There's a man lying in a hospital in Paris, dying of the mystery flu. It has come to Europe. Panic strikes. As best they can tell, after contracting the disease, you have it for a week before you even know it. Then you have four days of unbelievable symptoms, and then you die. The British close their borders, but it is too late. The disease breaks out in Southampton, Liverpool, and London. And on Tuesday morning, the President of the United States makes the following announcement. Due to a national security risk, all flights to and from the United States have been canceled. If your loved ones are overseas, I'm sorry. They cannot come home until we find a cure for this horrific disease. Within four days, America is plunged into unbelievable fear. People are wondering, what if it comes to this country? Preachers on television are saying it's the scourge of God. Then on Tuesday night, you are at church for Bible study when someone runs in from the parking lot and yells, Turn on a radio! And while everyone listens to a small radio, the announcement is made. Two women are lying in a hospital in New York City, dying of the mystery flu. 
it has come to America. Within hours, the disease envelops the country. People are working around the clock trying to find an antidote, but nothing is working. The disease breaks out in California, Oregon, Arizona, Florida, Massachusetts. It's as though it's just sweeping in from the borders. Then suddenly the news comes out. The code has been broken. A cure has been found. A vaccine can be made. But it's going to take the blood of somebody who hasn't been infected. So you and I are asked to do just one thing. Go to the nearest hospital and have your blood tested. When we hear the sirens go off in our neighborhood, we are to make our way quickly, quietly, and safely to the hospital. Sure enough, by the time you and your family get to the hospital, it's late Friday night. There are long lines of people and a constant rush of doctors and nurses taking blood and putting labels on it. Finally, it is your turn. You go first, then your spouse and children follow. And once the doctors have taken your blood, they say to you, wait here in the parking lot for your name to be called. You stand around with your family and neighbors, scared, waiting, wondering, wondering quietly to yourself, what on earth is going on here? Is this the end of the world? How did it ever come to this? Nobody seems to have had their name called. The doctors just kept keep taking people's blood, but then suddenly a young man comes running out of the hospital screaming. He's yelling a name and waving a clipboard. You don't hear him at first. What's he saying, someone asks? The young man screams the name again as he and a team of medical staff run in your direction, but again you cannot hear him. But then your son tugs on your jacket and says, Daddy, that's me. That's my name they're calling. Before you know it, they have grabbed your boy. Wait a minute, hold on, you say, running after them. That's my son. It's okay, they reply. We think he has the right blood. We just need to check one more time to make sure he doesn't have the disease. Five tense minutes later, out come the doctors and nurses, crying and hugging each other. Some of them are even laughing. It's the first time you've seen anybody laugh in a week. An old doctor walks up to you and your spouse and says, Thank you. Your son's blood is perfect. It's clean. It's pure. He doesn't have the disease. And we can use it to make the vaccine. As the news begins to spread across the parking lot, people scream and pray and laugh and cry. You can hear the crowd erupting in the background as the gray-haired doctor pulls you and your spouse aside to say, I need to talk to you. We didn't realize that the donor would be a minor, and we, we need you to sign a consent form. The doctor presents the form, and you quickly begin to sign it, but then your eye catches something. The box for the number of pints of, of blood to be taken is empty. How many pints, you ask? That is when the old doctor's smile fades and he says, We had no idea it would be a child. We weren't prepared for that. You ask him again, How many pints? The old doctor looks away and says regretfully, We're going to need it all. But I don't understand. What do you mean you need it all? He's my only son. The doctor grabs you by the shoulders, pulls you close, looks you straight in the eyes and says, We're talking about the whole world here. Do you understand? The whole world. Please, sign the form. We need to hurry. But can't you give him a transfusion, you plead? If we had clean blood, we would, but we don't. Please, will you sign the form? What would you do? In numb silence, you, you sign the form because you know it's the only thing to do. Then the doctor says to you, Would you like to have a moment with your son before we get started? Could you walk into the hospital room where your son sits on a table saying, Daddy, 
Mommy, what's going on? Could you tell your son you love him? And when the doctors and nurses come back in and say, I'm sorry, we've got to get started now. People all over the world are dying. Could you leave? Could you walk out while your son is crying out to you? Mom? Dad, what's going on? Where are you going? Why are you leaving? Why have you abandoned me? The following week, they hold a ceremony to honor your son for his phenomenal contribution to humanity. But some people sleep through it. Others don't even bother to come because they have better things to do. And some people come with a pretentious smile and pretend to care while others sit around and say, this is boring. Wouldn't you want to stand up and say, Excuse me, I'm not sure if you are aware of it or not, but the amazing life you have. My son died so that you could have that life. My son died so that you could live. He died for you. Does it mean nothing to you? Perhaps that's what God wants to say. I think that is a profoundly relevant and convicting analogy for our present day and what it means to really know what we do when we go to Mass. It is not about what we get, but about what we give and what we participate in. And so, if this is a struggle for you or you really want to pray for your journey back to Mass to be rich and beautiful and good, I encourage you to pray for the intercession of a wonderful saint who um, died when she was only 11 years old. Her name is Blessed Imelda Lambertini. And she lived from uh, 1322 to 1333 in Bologna, Italy. She was beatified um, almost 200 years ago by Pope Leo XII. And her feast is May 13th. She's the patron of first communicants. So she was born, as I said, in 1322 in Italy. And she was the child of a count. Um, so she was a wealthy uh, from a wealthy family. And her parents were also very devout Catholics. And they were known for their charity and generosity to the poor. Uh, and so as a tiny child, she had an unusual piety, holiness. She would delight in prayer. She would slip off to quiet corners of the house and she would adorn them with flowers and pictures to make um, a little prayer corner or, you know, like chapel space. And on her fifth birthday, she asked to receive communion. But the custom at the time was that children would not receive it till they were 14. But when she was nine, she went to live with some Dominican nuns near uh, near Italy, near her hometown, Bologna. And um, on May 12th, the day of her death in 1333, when she was 11 years old, it was the day of the vigil of the Feast of the Ascension. And she knelt in prayer and the light of the host uh, was reportedly witnessed above her head by the sacristan, who I believe was another nun. Um, and then that person fetched the priest so the priest could see. And after they saw that miracle, the, the priest felt compelled to allow her to receive First Communion. So she received it. Um, immediately after receiving it, she went back to her seat, decided to stay after Mass and pray. And then when uh, one of the nuns came later to get her for supper, she found her still kneeling with a smile on her face. And so she called her name, but she didn't stir, and so she tapped her on the shoulder, and at that point, Imelda collapsed dead onto the floor. Her remains are kept in Bologna at the church of San Sigismondo beneath a wax effigy of her likeness. Um, she would often say, tell me, can anyone receive Jesus into his heart and not die? And what she meant was, can we really give ourselves over to the Lord and not die to ourselves? Can we really go back to Mass and make it about us? Or do we recognize this opportunity to see all that Jesus is inviting us into? 
So, Blessed Imelda Lambertini, pray for us. Our patron, St. Charles Borromeo, pray for us, especially as we go back to Mass. If you've already gone back, I pray this helps you in that transition, or if you're about to this weekend, I pray that opens your heart to something new that the Lord can do in your life. Please let us know if this episode was of benefit to you. As always, the highest compliment you could pay us is to share this on social media with your friends and family, um, promote this podcast because it's benefited you in some way. Uh, make sure you visit our website, manafoodforthought.com. Our weekly psalm reflections are there, our old vlogs, and all of our podcast library, all 71 episodes now for you to go back and listen to. In fact, I think there's more than 71 because we did some half episodes. So anyway, uh, if you want to support us on Patreon uh, for as little as $1 a month and contribute to the cost of this um, podcast, if it's benefited you and you want to give back in some way, you can do that also on our website, and that would be much appreciated. And please rate and review this podcast if you have not yet done so. If you've just left a rating, please also write a review. That helps other people find this podcast. Um, And yeah, let us know what you think. If you have questions or topics for upcoming episodes, but know that we are praying for you. And until next time, we will see you in the Eucharist. Bye.